You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 132. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jana Levin and Pontus Böckman. Hey, alla hoppa! Sjöstock! <laughs> <laughs> How is everybody doing on this fine Sunday evening? Yeah, very well, very, very well. I must tell you, I've been, I, I spent last week doing a science festival in, in uh, here in Malmö, local thing, mostly for kids. It's not, not very big, etc., but just fun. And I, I gave a talk there a couple of times, or five times, I believe. What's the theme? Oh. Uh, on how can we know anything, really? You know, for so sure, I, like hundreds really of cool. No, no, but yeah, but so I start with yeah, you can see things, you can hear things, and then I show people that what you you know you see, what you see is not always what's there, and what you hear is not always what's there, and then you can mm-hmm. you can hear other people talk about what they've heard and seen, but of course they are just as bad at it as you are. So so yeah, just breaking their confidence really in what they can know about everything. But then I go into, you know, what what is science and how can we how can we work with that? So knowing that we don't see things the way they are, how can we try to eliminate the problems with that? So anyway, so I I did that and I, I also do a, an experiment there where I, I bring up air candling as an example of something that's really bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I actually have ear candles with me, right. so I call for volunteers to to now let's test it. And of course they ooh they are aghast. Do you want to put that in my ear? So no, you don't put it in the ear, but you you, you just uh, light it anyway and see if you still can see what they call earwax at the end when you've burnt it all the way down. You you can open it and they say this is proof that it's earwax. But if you yeah. haven't had it near an ear, then then it's not a any proof. Ah, okay. Anyway, okay. I did this a couple of times, the, the different talks, and on the fourth talk, there was there was somebody you know raising their hand at the back, uh, an adult saying so. I work with ear candles, and so suddenly the, the the there was some tension in the room because she was a professional ear candler. So we had to go have a little special, <laughs> a special session. Nice, yeah. Shock and horror. It was pretty cool. And then today, my sister called me. She lives in a smaller village outside Malmo, and she said, "I saw a guy today wearing one of your T-shirts because we also sold T-shirts at the place." Uh, and by, by by our T-shirts, you mean the, the Swedish skeptics? Sorry, VOF Swedish yeah. skeptics. Mm-hmm. Yes, right, yes, yes, right, right, right. Okay, quite, yeah. quite right. Yeah, Swedish skeptics VOF T-shirt. So she approached this guy and said, "Hey, nice T-shirt. Uh, what what's the connection?" And he said, "Oh, you know, I was at this science festival, and uh, there was uh, this guy there. I don't know who he was. He was talking about ear candling, and there was uh, this nice. lady saying there was, uh, and he was apparently impressed with what I said. So he bought a T-shirt later on." So good, one win. Let's 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 just go back to this lady with the ear candling. So what happened? Did she confront you? In a way, but I said, well, she said, I have, you know, I'm working with ear candles, and I have never claimed that that is earwax, but 
luckily I had the the website on the screen. So well, maybe you haven't. But the guys who sell the air candles, they say it's earwax. Yeah. But, but yeah. the whole point of the air candle is that you put it in to extract this earwax to clear the canal. Yeah, and not not just earwax. To to be honest, they also claim it it removes toxins from your body, etc. Yeah, it's detoxifying you. And it's very very good. She did claim it's very very good for people who cannot. Uh, take the medicine for some reason so well maybe not but i, I you know some some even claim that the ear candle generates a little bit of suction mm -hmm. and it's it's not only using uh the uh, your ear, ear wax to to clear no. your ear canal but also it removes the toxins from your body because of the suction that it, it generates yeah she talked so a bit of a of a vacuum which that's is just, created by, by, by. yeah it's all bullshit. but it's just not happening no no it's not it's not <laughs> Just when you're trying to break it down and trying to make people to understand logically and practically how on earth can it happen that this action in the year will remove toxins from anywhere in the body, let's assume those toxins exist. Like, practically, how would that... I, I, you know, yeah, anyway. I don't... Your ear canal is one of the holes of your body that can yeah. can be well, used. Maybe maybe there, there should be a, a bum. Uh, yeah, you, you know, should put it in, a, in your butthole instead. That would make yeah, more I sense, know, actually. Like, or whatever, you know. It's yeah, like, we'll do that next time. I think it'll be a fun experiment. Oh, you know what you could do is uh, you you shove um, an actual canal up the ass. And the gases, <laughs> as the gases come out, you just light them, and uh, then oh, yeah. it, you don't it, even... it definitely generates a suction. So it will, <laughs> it will remove everything. <laughs> you probably don't even need a candle because you already have the flammable gases coming out. So exactly, it'll be fun. Exactly, it'll you just fun. need methane. So let's all get into ass candling. How how did we get here, guys? I don't know. You started asking questions. I'm glad we have an explicit tag on our on our uh, podcast. Just in case we get into those arguments. <laughs> anyway, what have you been up to? <laughs> Andros, what have you done? I've been traveling, as always. Yeah, okay. I was in the UK. And the reason why I greeted you guys with the... I I hope I really didn't butcher it, uh, or that much, at least. No, um, it's okay. But, so it was, it was at the request of one of the great friends of the show, Rob from York. Oh, yeah. Uh, whom we all know from uh, QED. Sure. Yeah, the, the photographer guy. Because I met up with him mm -hmm. in York oh, when I was excellent. there. Mm. Yeah, in the afternoon. Did, did you go to their York uh, Skeptics in the Pub session or just just? The... No, because I was only in in town for the the afternoon. So we just met up and uh, went to have a drink and we had a little chat. And I don't know if you remember, but he had contacted us uh, with an offer because uh, he he apparently speaks three languages fluently. Mm -hmm. Obviously, English mm -hmm. as his mother tongue, mm -hmm. and uh, Spanish and French. Mm -hmm. Right. And he holds a degree, and he offered us to help with uh, not just us, but all skeptics out there. Yeah, translate. To help with any kind of translation projects, uh -huh. if there is a need to to translate uh, texts from Spanish or French into English, mm -hmm. he's more than happy to help out with that. And I think that's a very useful thing that he could offer. To the skeptics community it's, out there, it's 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 a it's a brilliant offer, yeah, and we really appreciate it. But what I find that I need, at, you know, when we do uh, research for like news items on the show, I, I need somebody to like kind of do it there on the spot. And I know that Google Translate isn't ideal, but that's I keep resorting to this. Yeah, although 
But we, we always talk about when we interview someone from Germany and especially uh, you, you, yeah, that's specifically from Germany when we discuss uh, the necessity of the, trans, the, the, the German text of uh, like, for example, homeopathy information network yeah, yeah. into English so that it can be worked by other skeptics around, around Europe. So this can be true for Spanish or French materials as well. And uh, we unfortunately we don't know too much about the French skeptics and what they do. Um, however, they recently contacted um, EXO, and I'm 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 really hoping that it will lead somewhere that that we we're gonna work together in the future. But um, that is pretty uh, pretty good. But I'm pretty sure that every single country has their own important materials that could be used by others, and. Translating it to English could be a brilliant first step. Absolutely. That. Yeah. So if someone someone has any kind of idea or any kind of material in Spanish or French that could be or should be translated into English, please get in touch with us and we can connect you with, with, uh, Rob. Yeah. with, with Rob. Good idea. Yeah. Great. And thanks for the offer, Rob. Thank you very Absolutely. much. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Appreciate. So, yeah. Yellow has the rain come to the UK? It was unbelievable to see everything so yellow. The, the rain hasn't come. We've got another week of plus 30 and above degrees to come because I've just checked the forecast today uh, for, for my travels to work. I'm still enjoying my daily cycle rides, so that's quite nice. And um, I've turned 38 this week, Woo! last week. Congrats! Oh, congratulations. Getting closer to, uh, getting closer, thank you, to the big 4-0. I'm, I'm kind of excited. I am excited about my big 40. I don't know why, but anyway. Uh, you know, once, once you pass 30, like, the age is kind of like, meh. Yeah. yeah. It's just another number. <laughs> and so it kind of loses all kind of excitement and significance. And then, yeah, you kind of... The, the big four will be interesting. Oh, a couple of years ago, I did not understand why people would make such a fuss about their, their age. But now that I'm 37 and my life is nowhere and my life has not not reached any kind of satisfaction in any way. You haven't accomplished anything, have you? No, I haven't. So <laughs> this is... This is why my my life has not started yet. This is this is how I feel, and sure. this is why my my age starts worrying me more and more, because I'm too. You're I'm, still just preparing for the real fantastic yeah. things that you will very soon do. Yeah. I still, We're all I still, I still have no idea what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna be <laughs> when I'm an adult, when I grow up. I, that's the same with me. I usually say that. Actually, I yeah, say that. I don't know no, what guy, I'm gonna be. Guys, you're missing out. You just need to stay in the moment. Ooh, take, mindfulness. Take some... Yeah. Living in the moment. Yeah. Living it's my not about, life. It's not about destination. It's about the journey, guys. Ooh. I know. Cheers. I know. I know. I know. Yeah. All right. So. Shall we start our journey towards uh, putting together we, a new episode? <laughs> we should we should try to attempt to do it all in one day while we're all young and beautiful and wonderful. <laughs> okay. Although that, that's too late for that already, I think. But anyway. Not for me. Not for me. <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> no, you're still young. I'm beautiful anyway. Not to talk about that, yeah. <laughs> Righty. Shall we crack on with this? Okay. The only way to do it is always with Yelana starting with uh, This Week in Skepticism segment. Yeah. I want to talk about somebody who was born uh, 
few years ago, well, a lot of actually years ago, uh, in 1875 on the 26th of July, and that someone is Carl Gustav Jung, mm. Who, mm. who was a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who founded analytical psychology. He was a somewhat a controversial figure and a very interesting person who thought about problems and human condition in a way that maybe not many people have before him and he's uh, became uh, a founder of many uh, psychoanalytical methods uh, and uh, he kind of fallen out with Freud who was actually uh, at the top of his uh, career back then uh, and who also was actually his teacher and he sort of started his own movement. Um, he had a lot of critics and there was even a book actually written about him uh, called The Young Cult, Origins of a Charismatic Movement, where a professor tries to uh, explore how Carl Jung was actually a cult leader who built his followings, following um, in the years uh, that he practiced psychoanalysis, and you know there's some merit to it. I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not convinced either way. Um, I haven't actually read the, the book itself, um, but it just shows how some of his ideas were, were very controversial and. Um, not liked by people. He's been called uh, a Nazi sympathizer, etc. But I think uh, what I can see in in his works, because he's written many books, um, and he he always explored um, ideas. He was trying to be a good um, scientist in in his field, you know, or, or tr trying to stick to scientific method. And uh, amongst many works that he's written, what caught my uh, eye when I was uh, preparing for this segment was the fact that he's actually, among many things, written a book about UFOs. Oh, uh, yeah. really? Yes. So it's huh? interesting because um, he approached this subject from a completely different perspective, which makes sense um, given what he, who he was. He, he um, was far more interested in what the rumors about aliens said about the human mind than whether the aliens themselves actually existed. Hmm. So the book was called Flying Saucer, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Skies. Uh, and it was published actually when he was in his 80s, just before he died. It was one of his last books that was published. And he just was trying to explain, um, by the end of 1950s, there was a lot of explosion of the sites, you know, the UFO sites. People would see them, people would claim that they've been abducted by them. Um, and it really became this cultural, big cultural phenomenon, especially in America. I think that's where it's all kind of started. Yeah. Yeah. And so what he's, he's done, he didn't want to say one way or the other. He believed that these sightings were real or he didn't believe in it. But he tried to understand why people were seeing them. What was it symbolizing? And this is where I said, you know, it makes sense in the context of, of who he was. He was always trying to see some sort of symbolism in it. Um, so in a similar manner that the medieval... Uh, alchemists projected their psyche into matter, like by looking in for gold and everything and trying to convert everything into gold. Uh, Jung felt that modern man projected his uh, and her inner state into the heavens. And this sense, the UFOs became modern symbols for the ancient gods, which came to man's assistance in time of need, which I find a fascinating point of view. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, 
But it was an interesting attempt at understanding why there were so many sites of the UFOs. I don't think we're anywhere closer to understanding whether these are real or not, or what, what to expect. But it's the explanation I can get behind, you know, when people are searching for something and they turn their eyes to the sky and they see something that comes from the heavens to help them, that are much more powerful uh, than them. Yes, and uh, of course there, there is a lot more that can be said about Carl Jung and his life's work, and it's more to do with psychoanalysis. Um, but I just wanted to touch on the interesting way that he would think about problems that you know that maybe other people never thought of, or the the, the side of things that never, people never thought of and um, how he remained curious until the uh, end of his uh, days, really, um, about uh, the human condition. And uh, I just thought he was an interesting figure to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. Good thinking. All right. Thank you very much, Ilan. Let's move on to the news items that we have prepared for this week. So let me start the news uh, items with uh, something that has been talked about on this show, and that is the government attack on the Hungarian Academy of Sciences and the establishment of the new Ministry of Innovation and Development. And uh, that guy who who decided to run this campaign against science and the funding of science uh, to be moved to the hands of the government directly instead of allowing the, the, the academy to fund different projects using their own budget. That is, of course, the source of which the, the budget is mostly the government, but uh, that's that's been like that for ages. But now... Earlier on the show, I talked about how the the academy came up with uh, different plans as to how they are willing to work with the government in terms of shifting the budget slightly. But they came up with a little bit of a plan. And now the the new minister he starts accusing the the academy the academy of uh, using different methods uh, and means of threatening the government and he criticizes the tone the spokespeople for this issue um, in Hungary uh, use against the government and this is just what a real proper dictatorship would use criticizing the tone and then saying that we're gonna go on with this plan anyway and you know what? Not only we're we gonna cut the budget of the European, uh, the Hungarian Academy of Sciences in half for next year, but we're gonna get rid of the formerly known Office of uh, Innovation and Technology completely. Wow! So now they're doubling down on the original stupid, idiotic idea of using science and using the funding of scientific projects as a means of politics. It's just wrong. Yeah. So it's just utterly and completely wrong and evil. So it shouldn't be happening, but apparently there is no stop to this. Wow. Doesn't look good, does it? No, it doesn't. Mm. It doesn't. What, what's this guy's name again? His name is Laszlo Palkovic. Laszlo Palkovic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And he says, he keeps saying that there have to be 
priorities set by the government in terms of what uh, fun, uh, research projects get funding and what projects do not. So what it looks like is that they're gonna they're gonna stop uh, funding basic research, and it's gonna be applied fields that will get most of the uh, the funding, and especially those that they deem interesting and worth funding. Mm. And why I I like to emphasize that is that they have no idea. It gets me thinking. We we talk about you having a secular state. You you separate religion from from politics, right? Or from the the way the the the, the society is run. You should also have a similar rule about uh, politics and science. That should be just as important. Science is science. Don't let that get. The politicians has nothing to do with that. Yeah, but you know, Hungary is in a different no, place, no, no. a different place right now in that term. I know because I, I, we, I know, we I... don't have secular. We don't have a secular state either. No, I con- our right. constitution specifically states that we are a Christian nation. I, I meant more globally that should be as an yeah, important yeah, yeah. I understand. principle. Yeah, yeah. And I agree with one. that. Yeah. I agree with that. I totally agree with that. It should be a general principle, secularity, and the separation of science funding from politics yeah we should have a word for that as well you know secular is a word but what's the word for the other thing anyway we'll think about scientific secularity <laughs> <laughs> yeah because secularity, secularity maybe there is a I word think, and if if, think... our, if our listeners know of it let let's let's hear hear it because yeah. we we we, yeah, yeah. we don't know yeah we we have listeners from many many different countries where different languages are spoken there must be one language that uses one already yeah it should be translated yeah <laughs> otherwise we'll make one up yeah yep good Alrighty. so we haven't talked about vaccines for a while no i'm just joking with that <laughs> uh this this one even though it comes from australia this uh, uh, news item it, it illustrates how other countries deal with uh the anti-vaccination movement and the problem of rising um, and population of anti- of unvaccinated kids. Uh, so Australia is going to be issuing monthly fines to parents who don't vaccinate their kids. They used to fine the parents of the kids uh, yearly and they would deduct uh, an amount from that uh, tax um, benefits. But now they're doing it uh, actually fortnightly so to remind them so that you know every time it comes out you know they'll know oh gosh you know i still haven't vaccinated i don't know how it's going to work you know on a psychological level but hopefully it'll be effective and it'll be interesting to know whether that will change the behaviors so this uh, drastic measure came into play um since the um anti-vaccination movement uh became bigger and expanded in, in Australia as well as other countries and the immunization um, and sorry and the objection to to the vaccination rose from 0.23% in 1999 in Australia to 1.77% in December 2014 i know these figures don't seem that big but actually the increase is quite large um so again the uh, health ministry in Australia trying to uh, remind everybody that immunization is the safest way to protect children from vaccine preventable diseases and of course the using Europe as an example of all these terrible measles outbreaks of which Pontus talked again and again and again and we've been covering that for a while and it still continues um, I don't think there's any good news Pontus is there? <laughs> no, no <laughs> No, there's more bad news More so, bad news 
like I said, I totally support the, the fine unvaccinated parents of the unvaccinated kids uh, strategy. I mean, it would also be interesting to see whether it works to change the behaviors. I hope it does. Watch this space and also we'll see how other European countries deal with it and what, what we can come up with. Mm-hmm. It's a great example. Mm. Another great example <laughs> is uh, when you start educating the decision makers at Parliament, wow. the, those who are making um, the rounds and who actually vote on stuff that that has any kind of scientific aspect. And what you can do is run projects like that in Spain that is called Ciencia en el Parlamento. Wow, science in the Parliament. What? Oh, yeah. That sounds crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, <laughs> crazy as <laughs> it sounds, I think it is a brilliant idea. Yeah. And uh, that means that uh, they could try to educate the public. And it's it has um, a massive support, apparently. There are 170 institutions and thousands of people behind that project. Um, it was announced last year, but uh, the, the kickoff of this actual project with... Uh, the first uh, preparatory conference session in July uh, has happened already. And it started with a training session and they started uh, actually talking about how people can be educated. Uh, at least this is how I understand it based on the translations that I could quickly do. So now, Rob, this this would be a topic that you could <laughs> you could jump right on. I think it's it's worth having a closer look at and uh, I'd like to encourage everyone from Spain to keep informing us about this and how it goes, what the, the project uh, entails. Yeah, so um, just let us know how it works and how it goes and the new developments and we'll be happy to report on it. Aye, aye. <laughs> so this, this is um, something that we uh, have mentioned in the past, um, but the, the practice still continues now. And it, I'm talking about the um, misuse of the NHS money uh, here in, um, in England. So our national health services that provide funding for uh, less than credible health treatments. Mm. Well, some of them are not even health I'm shocked, treatments. I'm telling you. I'm shocked. Yeah, um, um, we have talked uh, quite a lot about uh, efforts of our uh, friends in Good Thinking Society uh, in defunding homeopathy in the NHS. Uh, they have made a lot of progress, but still, there's still a lot of practices that are being supported um, on an NHS money. Things like Reiki. I don't know, guys, if you know what Reiki is. It's an interesting thing. Yeah, it's a it's when you lay your hands and you don't even touch the person. You kind of wave your hands about uh, around person's body, claiming to f cure their energy mm. and whatever is wrong with them. That's what it is, and um, and it's apparently uh, can help you deal with uh, stress, anxiety, depression. I haven't I haven't seen any claims that it cures cancer, but I'm sure that's not far off either. Um, it's um, gentle, supportive, and non-invasive. Well, it's very non-invasive. You're not I even say. close to the patient. I, <laughs> or you're maybe close, but not. 
Yeah. And I personally have friends who practice that, so uh, I sometimes have. So, to sorry, keep... practice as as yeah. in as in as in taking it or or oh, performing it. Though performing it and as well as taking it. Oh fuck. And I ha- and I'm having to sit there uh, with a straight face whilst the process takes place because it's very spontaneous how it happens. You know, somebody all of a sudden says, "Oh yeah, I don't I don't feel good today. Can you please do Reiki on me?" And oh fuck. Uh, anyways, all right. Long story. Mm. <laughs> Um, another one of those uh, that I haven't actually heard about before, uh, supported on NHS, is called Emmet. It's a gentle, soft tissue release technique developed by Australian remedial therapist Ross Emmet. It involves the therapist using light finger pressure at specific locations on the body to elicit relaxa- re- relaxation response within the area of concern. That sounds like a, a very uh, light touch massage to yeah. me. Yeah. And uh, this particular treatment claimed to have uh, provided relief to cancer patients, of course. Uh, and um, when, uh, for those, especially cancer patients who undergo surgery and experience post-surgery tightness and tension uh, and uh, around the surgery site on scar tissues. So they have that treatment done and apparently that, that helps them. Uh, and then something called Dioin Tao. Another form of massage that started or had its roots in traditional Chinese medicine. Or so they claim. Yes, and um, it enables the emotional elements behind the disease to be explored. So, for example, the Chinese will say that grief is held in the lung, anger in the liver and fear in the kidney. Sounds right. For this half-hour massage, there is no need for the patient to remove clothes. So it is, a, you know, again, one of those non-invasive, uh, you know, things. And this massage therapy can be given not only in a clinic, but also on a day unit or on hospital ward or even in an intensive care unit. Uh, in working the meridian system, the therapist is able to work the whole body, reaching areas other than the contact zones. <sighs> Presumably also by, by the way of some sort of energy connecting to hands. I don't know. Wow. I mean, how, how would you massage lungs and liver? <laughs> and non-invasively? And kidney. <laughs> no, and kidney. You know, uh, will, yes. you th- will you hold them in your thoughts and think about them kindly? I don't know. Oh, Jesus. Intensive care as well, you know, where people are almost dying. You start doing that and then, kind of and then you And then you come up and you say, hey, do you want to die in Tao? treatment and they'll be like yeah why sure. not what yeah. the hell have i got to lose <laughs> so those are some of the treatments we've never really mentioned before but these are the interesting treatments that are still uh, funded by nhs and um I, I, look i'm all up look, for freedom of whatever people want to do with their lives um if they think that reiki works great spend your own money go and do your reiki but I think natural, national health service should only work on uh, proven treatments that have been proven to work uh, and based on a, on a good science. Here, here. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Right. yeah. So I'm not, I'm not calling to close all the Reiki clinics, by the way. So. Mm-hmm. Just the ones that... But the <laughs> yeah, funding they, of They them. should yeah. be independently funded. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Please take your money, do whatever you want with it. But Fund leave, your own bullshit, yes. Leave national health service alone. But those, if uh, they are, are not publicly but independently and privately funded, that will lead to trying to get more and more people on their side. So that will lead to uh, actually scamming people. Yeah. So, but uh, but this way you're scamming the taxpayers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
So I would like to give the 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 customary update on the on the measles epidemic because even though people may feel that I harp on this too much it is really bad and it's not getting better it's worse than ever mm-hmm. uh, so let's go through the, some of the i almost said highlights but um, well isn't it terrifying jelena that europe now is referred to as a deterring example for places like <laughs> right? australia like you mentioned before yeah and also like in yeah. russia i i have mentioned yeah. that they they kind of saying look at what happens in 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 europe and if you don't want that to happen you need to vaccinate yeah, yeah. and i can't blame them though because now in ukraine over twenty-five thousand cases have, has been recorded this year in 2018 10,000 of those are adults and 15,000 are kids and there are 12 deaths in Ukraine alone from measles this year. The rate now is about a thousand new cases per week. True. So uh, it's really, uh, you know, getting totally out of control. Yeah, I don't know what to do about that, except, you know, spread the word about this. Uh, it, it's really terrible. UK, in more modestly modest numbers, but still bad, is uh, now over 750 cases this year. You know, remember, it should be zero, and it has been in, in previous years. Yeah, and didn't um, uh, WHO organization declare that the measles were eradicated in, in UK at some, point, at some point? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the WHO uh, declared that uh, measles were no longer endemic in the UK. So uh, I don't know what their position of this is on this is now. So, so it's back in the UK, according to what I can read. And uh, then we have France, who has recorded its third death from measles this year. And I believe there are way over, over a thousand cases. Then I have a new country that we haven't talked about too much before, or at all, maybe. And that's Slovakia. Uh, experts from the regional public health office in Slovakia are now closely monitoring the situation of measles in the eastern part of the country where there is an outbreak. Uh, since the outbreak uh, at the end of May, so it's not too long ago, near a village called Drachnov or something like that, there's been over 100 cases of measles. And interestingly, the outbreak is believed to be linked to people who arri- who have arrived from the UK. I shouldn't be laughing, but Ooh. people, do you find a pattern here? It all connects together. Measles is a disease that is highly contagious. And if you take people from one country mm-hmm. where they do have measles into another country where they don't have measles, get worse. The second country will get measles. Oh. And we've got the our globalized uh, world yeah. with all that all those people traveling around. Yeah, wow, yeah, it's happening. It's inevitable you know, to happen. Exactly. Interestingly, Slovakia has a mandatory vaccination program and reportedly is above the sort of magic ninety five percent coverage of of the getting the vaccination. So, but it's still, this can happen, and you know you can have pockets of of measles or sorry of a disease coming you know surviving and there may be some people in this particular village did decide not to to vaccinate etc 95 percent of course is only the average of the whole country mm-hmm. yeah. so measles is 
really a big problem. We are going from a situation like a decade ago, maybe more, where we had almost no measles in Europe. And I'm thinking we will be looking to something between 50,000 and 100,000 cases before the end of the year. And this is just my guessing, but mm -hmm. this is what it looks like to me. So no, no good news then, thanks. Yeah, no good news. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I'm afraid I'll stick to that pattern no. uh, <laughs> with the next item that I've got. It has an international relevance. This research that has been done by uh, scientists from Yale University. And uh, they looked at uh, cancer patients with breast, prostate, lung and bowel cancers. And uh, there was a number of people among them, uh, 258 people, uh, who also use complementary and alternative medicinal practices alongside at least one instance of accepting uh, a conventional treatment. Mm. So what they found was really shocking. There is a, um, a very lengthy discussion on the Times, uh, the Sunday Times, and also on Steve Novella's Neurologica blog. And they evaluate the results of this, uh, this finding, and it turns out that the use of complementary medicine was associated with poorer five-year overall survival compared with no complementary medicine. And the difference is 4.4%, mm -hmm. quite significant, and they say that it was independently associated with greater risk of death with a hazard ratio of two. They go into a lengthy discussion about how this happened or, or seems to be happening, but it's, uh, they say that uh, those patients who uh, turned to alternative complementary and alternative medicine, uh, they are much more likely to refuse all those, those therapies that have been known to work. Uh, and because of this, as a result of this, association with complementary and alternative medicine seems to be responsible for twice the risk of dying over a five-year period. Yeah. So if that is not enough for anyone to really think about whether we should criticize complementary and alternative medicine for not having any kind of positive effect on the outcome of these uh, cancer patients treatments then please look at this more carefully yeah and please don't come up with the bullshit of of these complementary and alternative treatments trying to improve the well-being or the quality of life of of cancer patients who are normally going through uh conventional therapies yeah because there is no evidence to that either yeah just not choose complementary and alternative medicine no practices over those practices those therapies that actually have been proven to work yeah i think that there's a, there's a very common problem here that if you are looking for what they call complementary or alternative treatments and still say well nobody told me to to skip the the normal treatments this is what happens sometimes. So I don't think mm. it's not that the alternative medicine kills people. It's no. not directly. It kills them by yeah. But say okay, but I'm doing this inst not instead, but I'm doing this so much so I can skip a little bit on the other one, and and then you're choosing something that doesn't work. Yeah. Right. And then not maybe not entirely, and maybe nobody is telling you to do it. 
But that's the effect anyway. Yeah, exactly. And this is what this study reveals. Yeah. And yeah. this is not the first kind of study that shows a similar effect. There has been, I think, at least one. But uh, it's very convincing. Yeah. Okay, so guess what, guys? There'll be no good news today. <laughs> oh, my God. I will have some. Oh, boy. People will tune out. Uh, I know. So um, this comes from the uh, website of Edzard Ernst. And this article, uh, it talks about the fact that the Homeopathy Journal of the UK, the impact factor of this journal, has risen, unfortunately. That's, that's a bad thing. Just if you were wondering if it's a bad thing or a good thing. So basically, uh, the impact factor of a journal is a measure reflecting the yearly average number of citations to recent articles published in that journal. And it is frequently used as a measure of the importance of a journal within its field. And journals, journals with higher impact factors are often deemed to be more important than those with lower ones. Uh, and the, the, the impact factors for any given year can be calculated uh, as the number of citations received in that year divided by the total number of articles published. And the new uh, impact factor of, of this homeopathy journal was reasoned by 52%, which is pretty freaking significant, yeah. if, you, if you ask me. <laughs> so more, cita more citations more of citation. homeopathy articles. Yeah. It shows that there have been more people referring to articles yeah. published in that paper, Correct. Uh, in that, that journal. But the other thing is that it gives them more bragging rights. Correct. Over they can go how, and say, yeah. How much of an impact they have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That gives yeah. them credibility. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. these are the si signs of times that we're living in. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm saying it's bad news, but actually, will it matter in in the long run? I'm still hoping that people will wake up to the bullshit that is homeopathy one day. Yeah, yeah but if if we just think about it, this is a, a brilliant and a very clear example of bad science. So if when when science and how you measure scientific outcome and how you uh, measure scientific progress because this is completely unscientific it's it's not it's something that goes against everything that science science stands for and so uh, why the they they brought homeopathy the journal homeopathy into life was exactly that that other medicinal journals would not accept their papers yeah and the the other thing is that uh, the impact factor does not care about whether the the articles published in that pay, in that uh, journal were criticized by the authors of other papers or were used as, as a reliable source of uh, scientific data so you know what the problem is then mm. so it's they don't distinguish between good and bad articles published it's just that if i write up an article in a different scientific journal that is a well-respected scientific journal in the field of medicine, they can still add that to the impact factor yeah. of the journal homeopathy. Because the, this system of measuring science does not care about what the reason for citing a, a, a paper is. So I can tell them, I can, I can say that, oh, the, the, the authors of that paper are complete idiots, and then I cite the paper. 
And then you get a higher uh, impact and, yeah, factor. And you, yeah. you help them generate a higher impact factor. Yeah, but it, luckily for us, uh, the, actually for homeopathy, it works the other way around. The less you cite them, the more potent it gets. So so, <laughs> so if you cite them a lot, then that does... Yeah, yeah I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to find a positive thing here. Okay, that's good. I like that. <laughs> so, yeah. But if you want to do something really positive, then start reporting pseudoscience, uh, pseudoscientific claims. And one of the best ways to do it is using social media. And that has happened for the second year. Last year, it was started by who else but Spanish skeptics. So ARPSAPC. So they started hashtag stop pseudoscience. Well, they use it in Spanish. That hashtag stop pseudociencias or ciencias or I don't know how to pronounce it. But I think it could work in English as well. So stop pseudosciences could be a hashtag used on Twitter. Last year, they say that uh, they collected 2000 reports made with uh, by using this hashtag, which is really cool. I think mm. if you want to draw attention to those articles and uh, those claims... Pff, it's the best way to do it. You stick a hashtag onto them. That means that you mark them as pseudoscientific claims. And if you want to raise awareness about them, what better way to do that? Yeah, great. Just to say something positive. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I'll bring the mood down again. Just a very short report again from Ukraine and again about not vaccinating people enough. Uh, they have reported the fourth case of diphtheria in in uh, Ukraine this year, oh, whoa, whoa, which whoa, whoa. is it totally uh, no, in, it's it's terrible, but also ridiculous. This is something that we should get rid of, uh, and thought we would have gotten rid of, but it's uh, it's coming back even in in Europe. So uh, diphtheria is. A terrible disease, a bacterial disease. It's a, you know, five to ten percent of people who gets it dies, and it is very easy to prevent because it's part of the. Very often, it's part of the tetanus uh, vaccinations. You you get the diphtheria and tetanus at the same time, and uh, the the vaccine that is and. Uh, most people should just do it, but apparently the anti-vax uh, uh, sentiments in, in Ukraine has mm -hmm. come so far that they don't even vaccinate against that. And it sh shouldn't happen at all. Uh, so, yeah, I agree. Uh, it shouldn't happen. But uh, what also shouldn't happen is uh, spreading misinformation in any way, right? This is why the Irish Times published an article by Vanessa Martinez asking whether Ireland needs dedicated body to fight pseudoscience. And uh, they specifically cite a Spanish organization that um, brought something very interesting into life. There's that organization is the uh, Spanish Organization of Medical colleges and i vaguely remember that we reported on that uh, last year so they uh, brought into life an observatory against pseudosciences pseudotherapies intrusion and health sects so this is the, the basis of their line of thought about the, the possible necessity of um, a body like that in ireland and uh, there are several people uh, 
cited there. Uh, one of them is uh, Dr. Robert O'Connor, who's the head of research at the Irish Cancer Society. And um, he says that there is an information overdose out there about uh, medicinal issues and health, health topics. And uh, it's no wonder that people especially when they are inaccurate and uh, it's 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 very difficult it's very complicated normally when it comes to health um and it's it's not a surprise that people get misled by some of the claims and ideas uh, out there and uh the Irish Skeptic Society and Cork Skeptics have also been named as uh, sources of uh, some urging to, towards uh, bringing bringing something into life, and they say that uh, uh, different approaches are needed to fight pseudoscience and and that way of thinking, and uh, I think the multidisciplinary approach is what is emphasized the most um, by by all of them who were cited there, and uh, what. Um, Mr. Ryan, who's Colm Ryan, uh, the, one of the members of Cork Skeptics, says best is that he says, I think a model such as Sense About Science or the Good Thinking Society in the UK might work. I think it's no use trying to argue with that because both of those organisations do a brilliant work in trying to educate the people and uh, for, for them to, to be able to make better decisions, health related decisions mostly so anywhere where you can find or, or put together an organization or a dedicated body to fight pseudoscience you should because there's too much of it out there yes yeah, absolutely yeah uh so there has been some positive development uh, in uk in regards to the research so the UK's House of Commons Science and Technology Committee has issued its latest report on research integrity. And this inquiry looks at trends and developments in fraud, misconduct and mis mistakes in research and the publications of research results. And um, there has been so-called crisis in reproducibility of research. And um, after the committee has um, looked at the findings, they, they have decided that there is a need to establish a National Research Integrity Committee to provide uh, a means of verifying that university investigations into research misconduct are handled appropriately. So this is a pretty good practice that's already been done elsewhere. Um, so the article mentions that it's already been uh, uh, mandated in Japan, uh, where findings of research misconduct are listed and publicized along with institutional responses. And uh, this resolve is rooted in principle that misconduct violates the true nature of research activities, is a betrayal of science itself, and it undermines faith in science and hinders scientific progress, which is absolutely true because every time it's found that the research is, is done unethically or not followed uh, the uh, good scientific methods, the group of people can take it as an example of saying, you know, see science doesn't work or whatever. Hmm. But we need to be transparent and we need to be better at, at addressing these issues because there are, these issues are out there, you know, there's no point uh, denying that every single research is, is impeccable. Um, so establishing these committees, I guess, is a step into the right direction, as I mentioned in the beginning, but possibly more that needs to be done going forward. But it is a good beginning. So um, let's see where it leads. And, the, and this is why I 
think projects like Redirection Watch that we often use as a source of information should be really supported. And they actually recently asked for uh, the helps of readers to do that. Finding out what has been retracted mostly for scientific misconduct is pretty pretty important. Yeah. In in science. Please support them if you can. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. And and please don't pretend like science doesn't make mistakes and know everything. Exactly. So. What what really counts is that we cor- that it corrects the mistakes. It corrects so, itself. It's got the method yeah. the rigorous me- method in place to correct itself. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you know who makes mistakes and nobody corrects him but me? Who? Pope. Pope. The Pope. And Pontus gonna poke him. Poke oh, him, poke yeah, exactly. So, Pontus, would you mind poking the Pope for us? I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, especially this time, I think it's fun to poke the Pope because he, 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 he has almost directly addressed us skeptics recently during the so-called Angelus prayer, which he has every Sunday in St. Peter's Square in the, at the Vatican, where he brought up the passage in the Bible where Jesus supposedly went home to Nazareth and nobody believed him. So I, I, I don't know if you are familiar with this one. It coined the phrase saying that no one is a prophet in his own town. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Have you heard mm-hmm. it? Uh, yeah. 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 If, if, for those of you who haven't, Jesus went back home and everybody was like, well, aren't you just Joseph's boy, the carpenter? Well, why, why do you come here pretending to be the son of God or something? And the interesting thing is that according to the Bible, Jesus lost his nerve there and he couldn't perform any miracles. So just like any old charlatan, he couldn't perform when he was called out. <laughs> and that is probably the most believable story in the whole Bible. It's from Mark 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, if anybody wants to look it up. However... Uh, the mm-hmm. Pope doesn't read the Bible the way I do. Uh, that's a shocker, I think. <laughs> so he feels that people of Nazareth is to blame for this. They shouldn't have been so skeptical. Let the man do his stuff. Well, me, I say, well done, people of Nazareth. <laughs> uh, Pope, however, feels that people should be a little bit more gullible. Don't question the myths, folks. You make the Pope's work hard and the, the, the Jesus's work very hard. So uh, don't do that. But I think the Pope is wrong and he needs to be poked, especially when he wants us to be less skeptical. Mm-hmm. We want to be skeptical, <laughs> yes, Francis. And we will. <laughs> Francesco Allora. Thank you very much. I hope he really appreciates you poking him all the time. I'm sure he listens to the show every week. Definitely, Mm. definitely. Mm. How cool would that be? (laughs) All right. So, there is something else that uh, we'd like to hear from you, Pontus, Mm -hmm. and that is who's been really wrong lately. Well, actually, nobody's been really wrong this week. Well, I'm sure a lot of people have, but uh, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about someone who's been really right, because that is very important as well to to point out. There is a, and this is a serious matter, uh, but very important. There is a young woman in Ireland called Laura Brennan, who tragically suffers from cervical cancer. She is 25 years old. 
And when she was a child, they did not yet offer the HPV vaccine routinely to all girls. So the, um, on uh, 9th of June, she spoke at a conference in Dublin, not only about the importance of the vaccine for girls, but also that we should give it to boys. Because you know what? This is, of course, a sexually transmitted disease. And you know what? Even if women are getting the bad end of the stick, <laughs> and I think that's a good pun, uh, when it comes to HPV, they wouldn't actually get the HPV infection if the boys were vaccinated too. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So Laura Brennan was diagnosed with cervical cancer in 2016, and she's currently undergoing treatment to slow or halt the progression. Uh, but in spite of her illness, she is actively campaigning together with the Health Service Executive, or HSE in Ireland, to spread awareness of the benefits of the vaccine. Three days after getting the bad news that the cancer had metastasized, uh, she contacted the HSE to ask if there was anything she could do to help spread information. So she is badly, she's severely ill and... and uh, it, probably will not end well for her but she is very very brave and awesome as a human being uh laura brennan sick from cervical cancer that could have been prevented if she had gotten the vaccine she gets today's prize for being really right thank you very much pontus okay i think this has been all that we had time for this week uh, before we go I will ask Yelena to uh, finish up with a nice quote. But before we do that, I'd like to draw the, uh, our listeners' attention to something that uh, will be happening in Spain. Uh, it's not an event, but it's a competition. It's a contest of writing fictional stories, uh, short stories, actually, that are related to critical thinking and skepticism. So we'll, of course, um, link to the original website of uh, ARP SAPC. But citizens of Spain who are over 14 are eligible to participate in this uh, uh, competition, uh, this contest. And uh, uh, it has to be in Spanish. It has to be between 600 and 800 words. Uh, or they accept versions in Basque, Catalan and Galician. So that's that's quite an open kind of uh, competition. And uh, the best works will be rewarded with a couple of books and they will be published in the journal El Skepticos, which is the journal run by this skeptical organization. So those who speak uh, Spanish and are citizens of Spain, please do check it out and do participate. The deadline of uh, admissions is the 31st of December 2018 so cool go Spanish skeptics yay and now Yelena would you like to finish up with a nice quote it's a quote I will not take too much of your time because it's a the literally shortest quote ever oh okay <laughs> be skeptical <laughs> it comes from Denis Diderot who was a French philosopher he said skepticism is the first step towards truth <sighs> the end well, he didn't say the end. I said the end. Yeah. <laughs> First step towards I truth. I wasn't that far from the truth. I, no. I, I, you, I were, you, yeah, you were very close. Be skeptical, that's it. Yeah, be skeptical. <laughs> yeah. Skep mm. 
First step. It's the first. It's the first step, anyway. Mm. And I can encourage everyone who's listening to this show to be skeptical. But now I think we're concluding the show. And on that note, I'd like to uh, thank both of you for joining me today, Yelena and Pontus. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. And until next week, goodbye. Bye bye. Bye bye, y'all. Bis dann. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. I'll find a new thing to do. All right. Okay, me too. <laughs> I... Hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the <laughs> to the ESP, the Alcoholic Anonymous Club. The Alcoholic Anonymous Club, <laughs> AAC. You are listening to the AAC. Uh, okay. Oh. Okay. Sorry, take away that. Okay. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so, Pontus. <laughs> yeah. Let's. Sorry. Would you mind po- po- poking the Pope for us? I'd love to. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha